If you have your Bible, would you turn to Genesis chapter 15 and begin reading at verse 1. Genesis 15, beginning at verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me since I am childless? And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Since you have given no offspring to me, one born in my house is my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This man will not be your heir, but one who will come forth from your own body, he shall be your heir. And he took him outside and said, Now look toward the heavens and count the stars, if you are able to count them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. Then he believed in the Lord, and the Lord reckoned it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess it. He said, O Lord God, how may I know that I will possess it? So he said to him, Bring me a three-year-old heifer and a three-year-old female goat and a three-year-old ram and a turtle dove and a young pigeon. Then he brought all these to him and cut them in two and laid each half opposite the other. But he did not cut the birds. The birds of prey came down upon the carcasses, and Abram drove them away. And when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram. And behold, terror and great darkness fell upon him. God said to, him, God said to Abram, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed for four hundred years. But I will also judge the nation whom they serve, and afterward they will come out with many possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You will be buried at a good old age. Then in the fourth generation they will return here, for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. It came about when the sun had set, that it was very dark. And behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch which passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying to your descendants, I have given this land from the river of Egypt as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenite and the Kenizzite and the Kadmonite and the Hittite and the Perizzite and the Rephaim and the Amorite and the Canaanite and the Girgashite and the Jebusite. Let's bow in prayer. Father, these are words that you have given to us by the inspiration of your Spirit. We pray that you would use this word from you to challenge, to encourage, to strengthen us this day. Thank you that you are the God who comes to us with your light in our time of darkness. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. A few weeks ago, I got an email uh, from uh, missionary Todd Shearcoke. Some of you may have gotten that same one. We told of a little three-year-old boy who was afraid of the dark. And he evidently had to pass between, uh, to get to the bathroom or to his bedroom, I forget which one it is. And he had to go through a dark area. And 
He was afraid to pass through that area, but he had learned something important that his parents had taught him. And as he would go through that dark spot in the house, he would say to himself, ask himself, do you believe in Jesus? (laughs) And then he would answer his own question and he would say, yes. (laughs) Of course, in Spanish, but see, yes. Do you believe in Jesus? Yes. That's what brought him through the, the darkness into the light. Well, Abraham had to deal with some difficult circumstances in our text. And it was symbolized in our text by the picture of darkness. We saw that in verse 12, when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and behold, terror and great darkness fell upon him. And then again in verse 17, we read this, It came about when the sun had set that it was very dark, And behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch which passed between these pieces. And so Abraham knew what darkness was all about. But in the midst of his darkness, God brought his light. Notice, first of all, to the darkness of fear... God brings the light of His protection. In verse 1, we find the first time in Scripture where God says, Do not fear. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision saying, Do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. Now notice, The first phrase of this chapter says, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram. So the obvious question we need to ask is, after what things? Well, if you go back to chapter 14 of Genesis, Abraham had faced a very fearful situation with amazing courage. His nephew Lot had been taken captive, and Abram went with his 318 men. And remember how he fought against that very powerful enemy, rescued Lot, all the spoils of of Sodom, and and brought them all back. And that really was a, a mountaintop experience of faith in the power of God. But you know, whenever we experience a great victory, we are prone to... A great fall. And we see that pattern throughout Scripture. Remember when when Elijah had been on Mount Carmel, calling down fire from heaven against the 450 prophets of Baal, a great mountaintop victory. And then we find him in the very next chapter, running from Queen Jezebel, hiding in a cave, wanting to die, and said, Lord, it's enough. Okay? Just take my life. I don't want to do this anymore. After a great victory... A great challenge. Abraham had experienced this earlier in chapter 12 when God called him. He left his country. He left his home. He didn't know where he was going, but by faith he went out. He obeyed God. And then the very end of the chapter, we find him facing a famine, taking off to Egypt, lying about Sarah, his wife. After a great victory, there was a struggle. And I can imagine Abraham in this situation 
probably started to reflect upon what he had just done. With 318 men, he had gone against this powerful enemy, had brought Lot and all the spoils back, and now maybe he's starting to wonder, what if they come back after me? What if this very powerful enemy decides to attack me for what I've done for bringing back Lot and the spoils of Sodom? I could be in deep trouble. Ever experienced that before? You go through something and say, whoa, what did I just do? (laughs) So God comes to him after these things, and he says to Abram in a vision, don't fear, Abram. Do not fear. And the reason why he says do not fear is because I am a shield to you. I am a shield to you. And that picture of a shield was a very common picture of God's protection in the Old Testament. And that word shield is found in many places, perhaps most often in the Psalms. Let me just give you some examples. The third psalm is a psalm of of David as he describes his journey away when Absalom was chasing him. He says, O Lord, how my adversaries have increased. Many are rising up against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no deliverance for him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me. My glory and the one who lifts my head. I was crying to the Lord with my voice, and he answered me from his holy mountain. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustains me. I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people who have set themselves against me round about. And you read through the Psalms and you see many examples like that where people in time of need and time of struggle have called out to God as their shield. And they found joy. And they found peace. And they found trust in that time that God indeed would be their protector. And so Abraham didn't need to fear because God would protect him. God said, I am a shield to you. And during those times in our lives when we are afraid, when fear comes sweeping in upon us, we need to remember who God is. He is our shield. He is our protector. He is the one that will provide for all of our needs in those dark times of fear. So to the darkness of fear, God brings the light of His protection. Notice, secondly, to the dark of doubt, God brings the light of His Word. Several years had gone by since God told Abraham that he would become a great nation. And yet nothing seemed to be happening. His wife was still barren. They were getting older and older. And so Abram had some questions. In verse 2, Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? Since I am childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abraham said, Since you have given no offspring to me, one born in my house is my heir. 
So here Abram's saying, okay, God, you've given me this promise. You've said that all the nations of the earth will be blessed in me. And, and here we are. Time is going on. We are getting older. Sarah's been barren. Is it going to be through a servant in my house? Will Eliezer of Damascus, will he be my heir? Notice how God answered Abram's doubt. Verse 4 says, Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This man will not be your heir, but one who will come forth from your own body, he shall be your heir. Abraham, I am going to give you a son, and that son will come forth from your own body. He will be your heir. And then God gave Abram a picture of what it would be like. In verse 5, he said, it says, He took him outside and said, Now look toward the heavens and count the stars if you are able to count them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. So if you go back to chapter 13, God had told Abraham, Look at the sand of the sea. That's how your descendants are going to be. Now he says, look to the stars of the heaven. That's how your descendants are going to be. So whether we look down at the ground or looked up at the sky, that was a picture of what God was going to do for him. So shall your descendants be. And then we find in verse 6 where it says this, Then he believed in the Lord. And he reckoned it to him as righteousness. The word believed here is is literally amen. God said, so shall your descendants be. Abraham said, amen. So shall it be. Yes, God, I believe what you've said. I trust in the promise of your word. You indeed will do What you said you will do. All he had was God's word, and that was all that he needed, right? What more did he need than the word of God? God said, this is what I will do. And Abraham said, Amen, God. I stand on that word. And notice what happened when Abram believed God's promise. Verse 6 says that he reckoned it to him. As righteousness. Or he credited to him as righteousness. That's a very interesting word because it's a bookkeeping term. It's an accounting term. By faith, God credited to Abraham God's righteousness. And that's why Martin Luther called it an alien righteousness. It was not a righteousness that Abraham had in in himself, but rather it was God's righteousness that he credited to Abraham's account, so to speak, because he believed the promise of God. And that's what our righteousness today is as well. It is not our own righteousness because our righteousness is like filthy rags. But when we come to God by faith in Jesus, we are given then as a gift the righteousness of Jesus. 
So we stand today by faith in the righteousness of Christ. And that's a perfect righteousness, isn't it? We stand faultless before the throne because of Jesus. This verse really is one of the most important verses in the whole book of Genesis because it is used in the New Testament in three separate places to, to, to nail down the truth that we are saved by faith. Look at Romans chapter 4. Verse 1, Paul says, What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh, has found? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Jump down to verse 9. Is this blessing then on the circumcised or on the uncircumcised also? For we say faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it credited, Paul asked, while he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, because that had not even been instituted, but while uncircumcised, and he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while uncircumcised, so that he might be the father of all who believe, without being circumcised, that righteousness might be credited to them. So what's Paul's point here? Number one, salvation in the Old Testament, as well as in the New Testament, has always been by faith. You ask some people, how were they saved in the Old Testament? Well, they had to obey the law. No, (laughs) no. Abraham was saved by faith, the same way we are saved by faith. And then the second thing that Paul drives home here is that it was not just for the Jew, but for the Gentile. Abraham was saved by faith prior to circumcision. And so the gospel is both for Jew and for Gentile. And so we can rightfully say today that by faith in Jesus, we are sons and daughters of Abraham. Because we believe as he believed. And aren't you glad that our assurance of salvation is based upon God's unchanging word? That's what was the case for Abraham. He believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. So we stand on the promise of God. We stand on the word of God. How do I know that I'm saved? How do I know that I have eternal life? How do I know that when I die, I will go to be with Jesus? It is not based on my feelings. It's not based on anything I've done. But it is based upon the Word of God, and God's Word does not change. I remember the story of a couple of guys that were hiking in the mountains, and they came across this little mountain cottage. And they wanted some water, and so they knocked on the door. This lady came to the door, and she gave them some water. And they started visiting. And these two young men were Christians, and so they asked the lady if she was a believer. Do you know Jesus as your Savior? And before she answered, she went into her bedroom. And about a minute later, she came out and she said, Yes, 
I am a Christian. They said, well, why did you go into your bedroom first and then come out and say, yes, I'm a Christian? She said, because my Bible still says the same thing. <laughs> what? Standing on the word, the promise of God. That's where doubt flees. That's where doubt goes. When we stand and we claim the promise of God's word. Abraham was doubting and God gave him his word. Abraham believed it. And God credited to him as righteousness. When we're standing on the promises of God, we have no reason to doubt. God's word is true. It is steadfast. It is sure. It is faithful. And as the hymn writer says, standing on the promises is where we find our assurance. So to the darkness of fear, God gives His protection. To the darkness of doubt, God gives His Word. And then thirdly, to the darkness of the future, God brings the light of His promise. Notice after Abraham put his trust in God's Word, God tells him what things were going to be like for him and for his people in the future. And it wasn't going to be an easy time. And God illustrates this with this darkness that Abram experienced. In verse 9, God said to him, Bring me a three-year-old heifer and a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram and a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And he brought these to him and cut them in two and laid each half opposite the other. And then verse 12 says, When the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, terror and great darkness fell upon him. And God goes on then to illustrate the dark time it would be for His people. Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs. They'll be enslaved and oppressed for 400 years. But I will also judge the nation whom they will serve, and afterward they will come out with many possessions. And then verse 17, it came about when the sun had set that it was very dark. And behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch which passed between these pieces. Now, in the midst of the darkness that would come, there are several ways in which we see the light of God's promise. For one thing, God promises to bring His people out of bondage to bring them out of Egypt and to bring them into the promised land. He said they are going to be enslaved for 400 years. But God says, I'm going to bring them out. I will judge the nation whom they will serve, and afterward they will come out with many possessions. And so it would be a dark time for the people of Israel and Egypt, but God would not forget His promise. He would bring the mount. There's another promise here. Very interesting what God promises to show patience to those who are lost in the darkness of sin. Notice verse 16. There's a very interesting phrase. It says, Then in the fourth generation they will return here, the people of Israel. And then we find this phrase, For the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. 
Who were the Amorites? They dwelt within the land of Canaan. And if you look at Leviticus 18, you will see what kind of people lived in the land of Canaan. Because in Leviticus 18, God told the people of Israel, Do not live like the people in the land to whom I am sending you. And God goes on to describe what they lived like in Leviticus 18. If you're familiar with that chapter, it is filled with sexual immorality, child sacrifice, all kinds of things that God describes as an abomination to him. Now think of that. That's the way they lived in the land of Canaan. But what did God say? He was going to bring Israel into the land and he would cast out these people in that land. But it would be the fourth generation, 400 years. Why? For the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. Would you call that patience that God gave to those people? He waited 400 years before he drove them out of that land. The iniquity of the Amorite was not yet complete. It's like the, 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 the cup was being filled and filled and filled and filled with sin and finally it had to be dumped out. God was very patient with the people of Canaan. And when you hear people say about Israel, how could they drive these people out of their land? You know why they were driven out of that land? Leviticus 18 said that the land spewed them out. The land vomited them out because of the way that they had defiled it. But God waited 400 years. You talk about patience. Reminds me of the verse in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, that God is patient with you, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. How long did God wait for you? Is God patient? You better believe He is. And there's a beautiful illustration of it there. How long He waited until he brought judgment. There's an interesting ceremony here where Abraham was told to take these animals and to cut them in half. And what was often done in those days when a covenant was made, they would take these animals and then they would cut them in half and then the people that were involved in the covenant would walk in between these pieces. And it symbolized the fact that you have this group making a covenant with this group and together they would walk between these pieces as if to say we are bound by the promises that we are making in this covenant. So if you and I made a, made a covenant, we'd walk together between those pieces of animals and you'd be saying, I will abide by my responsibility and I'd be saying, I will abide by my responsibility. That was kind of the, the thing that was done in that day. But notice what is different here. Verse 17 says, It came about when the sun had set that it was very dark and behold, there appeared a smoking oven 
and a flaming torch which passed between these pieces. Abram did not pass between these pieces. And the reason why he did not pass between these pieces, because this covenant that God established with Abraham did not depend upon Abram. It depended upon God and God alone. And that's what God was saying to Abram, Lord, this promise of a son, this this promise that I'm giving you, this promise that I'm going to bless all the nations of the world through you, it does not depend on you, Abraham. It depends on me. This is a promise that I will make. And I don't need you to do anything, Abram, because you can't do anything. You are old and your, your body is as good as dead. Sarah's womb was as good as dead, Paul says in Romans. It did not and it could not depend upon Abraham. That promise being fulfilled depended upon God and God alone. And so that smoking oven, that flaming torch that passed between the pieces was a testimony to Abram that the covenant being fulfilled depended upon God and God alone. When it comes to your salvation, when it comes to my salvation, it all depends on Jesus, isn't it? It's not like Jesus does his part and I do my part, huh? Jesus died on the cross and then I try to do the best I can and I hope that someday I'll make it, huh? Jesus paid it all, the hymn writer says. All to Him I owe. When Jesus was dying on the cross, what did He say? It's almost complete. It is what? It is finished. The finished work of Jesus on the cross. That's what we see here, fulfilling that covenant that God had made. It depended on Him and on Him alone. I read a story about a missionary that was visiting a young little boy, little Irish boy, in the hospital. And the missionary shared the gospel with this little boy, and he was kind of struggling. He had been brought up as a Catholic, and he thought, you know, sacraments and penance and, and, and doing the best I can, and never really, you know, disregarding Jesus, but this whole idea that, you know, yes, it was Jesus, but... You know, there's, some, there's some works, too, that I, I need to do. Well, the missionary came back another day, and the boy was sitting there with just a glow on his face, great joy in his heart. And he said to the missionary, he said, I always knew that Jesus was necessary, but I never knew till yesterday that Jesus was Enough. I always knew that Jesus was necessary, but I never knew until yesterday that Jesus was enough. Friends, Jesus is enough. He's enough. He paid it all. And He offers life as a, a gift. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ, our Lord. And aren't you thankful that Jesus is enough? (laughs) 
What he did on the cross is sufficient for our salvation. In Jesus, we have the light of God's protection. In Jesus, we have the light of God's word. In Jesus, we have the light of God's promise. In John 8:12, Jesus said this, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus is not only necessary, but Jesus is enough. He's enough. And if you have Jesus, you have life. Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus, that you are the light of the world. You are the way, the truth, and the life. You are the one that dispels our fear and our doubt. You are the one that gives us hope. Your work on the cross was finished. The plan of salvation complete with your death and resurrection. And thank you that we can rest in the promise of your word. We can stand on that truth. That salvation is by faith alone in what Jesus Christ has done for us. Lord, I pray if there's someone here today who has not yet experienced that great joy, that great peace of knowing that their sins are forgiven because of Jesus Christ. Oh, Lord, would you draw that person to place their trust in you today to receive the gift of everlasting life found in our Savior, the Lord Jesus. For we pray in his name. And for his sake, amen.